0: The uncertainty, the sense of, of, I'm an amateur at this, all of that is completely normal. Everybody who went before you felt that way. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're not doing it.
1: Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. In today's episode, I am bringing back to the podcast the brilliant and talented author and speaker, Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie last appeared on the podcast to talk about her game-changing book, How to Raise an Adult, written in response to the over-parenting trends she witnessed as a dean at Stanford University. Today, she's back to talk about her brand new and equally amazing book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. I had the opportunity to get an advanced copy, and I just have to say, this book feels like a generous gift to adult and soon-to-be-adult humans. It is so thorough, and I got so much out of it, both for myself and as a parent. I wanted to talk to Julie about this book, not just because I think it should be required reading for everyone, but also because of how powerfully inclusive it is. We talk about how important it was to Julie that this book should represent the whole spectrum of adult experiences, including neurodivergence, that it be both practical and normalizing, as well as some of the considerations that went into writing a how-to-adult book in a rapidly changing world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Oh, and I also encourage you all to read Julie's memoir, Real American, which examines racism through her experience as a Black and biracial person. Just basically, don't miss out on anything Julie writes or creates for the world. Lastly, I want to give a quick shout out to Devin O'Brien and Sabrina Risk, two new supporters of the podcast. Thank you so much. By joining my Patreon campaign, you are helping to support the production expenses associated with making this show. That includes helping me pay my fabulous editor Donna, the hosting costs, creation of all the associated assets, and more. If you get a lot out of the show and would like to help cover the costs for making it, please join my Patreon campaign, where you can sign up to make a monthly contribution as little as $2 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. And now here is my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Hey, Julie, welcome back to the podcast. Debbie, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I'm super excited. I know that we're one of the first conversations that you're doing as an interview for your New book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And I cannot wait to dive into this with you. And I actually want to start because I know a little bit about your process, but I want to share with my listeners, um, a little bit about your journey for writing this book. So, you know, you wrote How to Raise an Adult and, and then you wrote Real American and, and then this book I know you had you know, you knew was going to be coming, but it wasn't an easy process for you, I think, getting into it. So how did you know you were going to write this? And and how did that unfold for you?
0: Well, to be frank, I didn't want to write it. Mm. (laughs) Um, My publisher asked me to write a sequel to my book on the harm of overparenting, how to raise an adult. And um, so we signed a contract uh, for me to write a sequel to that book. But we didn't really talk about what either of us meant by a sequel to that book. Um, my first conversation with my editor was one in which she said, okay, so now that we've signed the contract, let's talk. Uh, this is going to be a book for the parents of young adults. And I said, hold up, the author of a book on the harm of overparenting is not going to perpetuate those harms by writing a book geared toward the parents of young adult children, as she was calling it. Um, I just can't do that and and, and, re- and sort of stand within my own integrity. So I said, this book must be squarely for young adults themselves. And I won that battle. Um, I said their parents might read it and that would be fine. But this all along this generation of folks are the folks I've been rooting for. I've been rooting for them to be okay and to find their way. This is for them. And so I won that battle. We agreed who the audience was. Then I set out to try to write this book for them and failed for about three years. I signed this contract in 2016. I didn't really have the concept for the book, meaning the voice and the structure and the chapters, um, approved until 2019. And I just didn't feel like an authority on the subject of adulting. I thought, who the hell am I to tell anyone how to live their life? And ultimately, I landed on a structure that includes my voice, yes, my stories, yes, but also the stories of over 30 other people. I wanted to be clear on the page that there is no one way of being an adult. And I wanted to honor the myriad, infinite paths and situations that people take and face. And ultimately, uh, that's what the final book is. But boy, was it a long time in coming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I actually would love if you could even just define young adult. So what what does that actually mean in the context of the audience for your book?
0: Yeah, this book is directly aimed at 18 to 34 year olds, um, the people who are really quite famous or infamous now for coining the verb adulting, as in I don't know how to adult. I don't want to adult. Adulting is hard. I'm scared to adult. Basically, younger millennials and older Gen Z. Those are the folks we're hoping will read this book.
1: Got it. And, you know, I'm well into my adulthood uh, as as I'm reading this. And I still, I took so much away from it. And I also really remember, you know, when I was in my mid 20s and living with my boyfriend in in New York City and, you know, in the tiniest, like grossest little apartment and being like, gosh, well, I think I'm an adult because I have these responsibilities, but I have no clue what I'm doing. And there was no like formal welcoming party or celebration to becoming an adult.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to address. Like here you are, you're chronologically adult, you have no idea what you're doing. And that's normal. I think that's one of the key themes of the book is the fears, the uncertainty, the sense of, of I'm an amateur at this. All of that is completely normal. Everybody who went before you felt that way. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're not doing it. And like you've said, you're squarely an adult now. So am I, I'm 53. Do I have it all figured out? No, but what I have figured out is I know myself. I know my fears, my dreams, my wants, I know my why I have a sense of how to try things and how to recover from things that I fail at. And I think that kind of boils down to what it means to be an adult. You're not an expert at it. You just know you can. You can try and you'll be fine and you'll keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll keep going.
1: And so I will just say that reading this as a parent, you know, my guy is 16. So he, you know, launching is something I'm thinking more about, but for me, it was really also insightful just to think about how to best support him during his launch in a different way than, you know, how to raise an adult really is focused on us. But it just like sparked me in different ways. I feel it is, and it is, it is incredibly thorough. Um, If you guys could see, and you will see, like, this is a big book. This is, this is like, I got this in the mail. I'm like, oh my goodness. And, um, but it's just, it's so rich. This is what I wrote down. Honestly, it feels like an incredibly generous gift to adult humans. It is hard won wisdom and it's super vulnerable. So I'm wondering, do you have kind of a, a highest hope for the book and how it will support its readers?
0: My highest hope for the readers I want for the readers to feel this book was written for them as an individual. I'm hoping that there's enough examples in there, enough difference on the page that every single human who picks it up will somewhere across those hundreds of pages really feel that I'm speaking directly to them in a very compassionate, understanding, brave way um, I'm hoping it'll feel like a companion that they will want with them that they could turn back to. We've worked so hard on the index because for example, as you know, dogs play a small but important role in this book. You know, there's a story where uh, somebody's got brand new twins and when they have to put the babies down for a while on the bed, the dog comes over and places his his places his snout on the baby's legs to hold the baby in place. It's so loving. And somebody's going to connect with that story and want to rifle through and say, where's the story about the dogs? And so dogs are in the index, you know, how to help people come back to the book uh, time and time again is is very intentional. Um, and my hope for the book is that, you know, it, it proves itself as a text of worth and value and that it finds its readers. It finds its people. I'm I'm very hopeful. I've, I, you know, when you, you know, cause you're an author and you know, these feel like our children in some ways, these books we write and I'm calling this one because it is such a big book. I call it my bouncing baby boy and I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping my bouncing baby boy or girl or non-gender specific book, you know, goes and makes its way and is well-received and, and treated with kindness. And, <laughs> um, yeah. That's awesome. So
1: you and I had a conversation while you were writing this book about how important it was to you. And you talked a little bit about this just now that your turn was inclusive. It was really critical to that. It felt like it was written for everyone, including neurodivergent adults. And I know you really wanted to get it right. We had a great conversation about that mission. So I'd love if you could share a little bit more about that particular vision, not just neurodivergent adults, but this idea of making sure that it really was truly representative of all different types of readers.
0: Yeah, first, I want to thank you for making yourself available for that conversation. Everyone who's listening trusts you as a wise and compassionate and frank resource, and so do I, my friend. So was really grateful to be able to call on you and get your guidance and feedback. Um, let me back up a step and say, for listeners who aren't familiar with me, I want you to know that I am a Black, biracial, queer person. So I have been in this world accustomed to being uh, left off the page, accustomed to being in the margins or not thought of or what have you, accustomed to being otherized. So while I am not neurodivergent myself, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for all who find themselves in a life experience, a category of people, a demographic um, that is marginalized or unseen. So that is why as an author. When I'm writing books that purport to be for all readers, that I do the work to try to ensure that all readers, and I'm now using air quotes, will in fact feel that they were thought of as I wrote this. Now, can I ensure that all readers will feel that way? No, because I'm not in control of what anyone else thinks, but I have done the work as an author to try to be, you know, very, very deliberate in thinking about what stories I will include when I'm illustrating a point through someone else's lived experience, which I do over 30 times in this book, I wanted those folks in the collective to be an incredibly diverse group. And they are, including neurodivergence and including sexual orientation, including the gender spectrum, including racial classifications, but also including socioeconomic class and the degree to which someone is educated or not and where they live in the country and if they're an immigrant and if they are dealing with infertility or if they've been in the military or if they're a Hindu or if they're estranged from their parents. I mean, there's just this, I'm just touching on a handful of things that I hope give you a sense of where this book, of how inclusive this book aims to be. I will also say that just in a more crafty manner when it comes to the craft of writing, so I just spoke to the structure of the book whose stories I chose to put in there, but my own narrative language, the way I choose to construct my sentences was time and time and time again, an effort to ensure I'm not, you know, I don't use he to refer to all people. I don't even use he or she to refer to all people because I know that the gender spectrum is a spectrum, not a binary. And I will fight that battle, you know, as long as I'm an author that I will not make gendered assumptions I try to be inclusive of, of you know, I don't just sort of have a chapter on mental health issues. I refer throughout the book, like, if you are anxious, this thing I'm advising may be hard for you. Um, so I'm honoring that truth while still giving the broader set of advice that may be more applicable to those who don't have anxiety. So those are just examples of how I'm trying to show up on the page in a way that is respectful of all humans.
1: Yeah, and it it's so effective. And it it does feel the word in that's coming to my mind is breakthrough. Um, you know, I know that other authors have this same goal. And have, have done this kind of work. But as someone who's writing in a very a very, you know, what will be a very mainstream, um, hopefully New York Times bestselling book. Um, and you have such a, a big presence, it is so comforting and validating to know that, you know, readers are just going to see themselves because that is a rare thing, right? Especially when you're we're talking about prescriptive nonfiction, which I guess that's what this would fit into, but books that are designed to give us direction and tools we often feel not seen in some capacity or that it doesn't really relate to our experiences. And I don't know that anyone could feel that way reading this book. So it's really powerful.
0: I appreciate your noticing that and reflecting upon it. It is certainly one of my main goals in this book is to achieve that outcome. I think many people though, Debbie will totally overlook that. The people for whom the world has always been constructed, the neurotypical people, uh, the people without mental health challenges, the people who are straight, the people who are middle class, the people who are white, the people who are male, um, they might not even notice that this book is deliberately inclusive of others. And um, in some ways, I think, therefore, what I'm doing is a little bit stealth. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's. You know, it's like, oh, hey, (laughs) going to sneak this book up on you. Maybe they'll figure out through osmosis that something different is happening without being able to put their finger on quite how this book is different. Whereas for those in communities that are historically otherized, I'm hoping it'll be utterly obvious and people will say, wow, finally, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, yes, yes. That that is my hope.
1: Mm, That's great. We'll be right back after this quick break. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet. Travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Synbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed-released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. So there's a chapter I want to dive a little deeper into. Um which is probably not going to be a surprise, um, which one I'm talking about in this conversation, it's called Take Good Care. Um, I devoured that chapter, I just thought it it was so well, it's really, um, in so many ways talks about not just adults who are neurodivergent or might have mental health challenges, but just the importance of really knowing yourself and taking care of who you inherently are, with all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses. So can you talk more about Uh, that chapter. Just tell us a little bit about it.
0: Yeah. um, So I think I began with the understanding that the generation I'm speaking to is one in which humans have, uh, more so than ever, had the benefit of testing, diagnoses, um, support around mental health challenges, around neurodivergence. And My point being, a book 20 years ago aiming to elucidate these same subjects, the subject meaning how to be an adult, might have relegated neurodivergence, I wouldn't have even used that term, of course, and mental health challenges to kind of an asterisk, you know, whereas I wanted folks who are are dealing with these situations, as I broadly refer to them in the book, situations, to just be centered on the page. And um, so that was one goal here. Another is... um, that I was very careful in this chapter to just open up and talk about language. I basically, after sharing a few things about my own personal situations as a way into the topic, I then go to this language, a long (laughs) um, treatise, not treatise, but like a couple pages about the language I am using in this chapter in an attempt to be inclusive while knowing that it is impossible to be entirely inclusive, knowing that language is constantly evolving and that, you know, my hope is that this chapter will make people feel very seen and supported, but I could use a term that puts somebody off and I wanted to just own that and state my intentions and ask for grace basically of my readers as they hopefully, you know, ask for them essentially to give me the benefit of the doubt that I'm trying here um, to be as inclusive and as au courant as possible with my language, knowing that language is constantly evolving Um, I wanted anybody who's been otherized around their mental health or around their neurodivergence to feel completely seen, loved, respected, validated, supported, and helped. And I think the, the utter point of this is we all, many, many of us have a situation and to know ourselves fully in it. To understand what that self needs to be whole and healthy and to move forward, that is the point of this chapter. It's not about labeling anybody. It's not about trying to fix somebody. It's, it's sort of just inviting the reader, if they're not already there, into a deeper knowing of the self so that they can love and embrace that self and head out into the world um, looking after that self. And then I think implicitly there's something about aging in here, which is, you know, your older self will want your current self to take good care of itself, okay? There's a lot of self in that, in, in what I just said. And a key message of this book for 18 to 34-year-olds is get stuff in place now, whether it's owning your own neurodivergent situation or mental health challenge or your financial situation or what have you right get in get on that stuff now both because it matters now and because your older self your 50-year-old self your 70-year-old self will really benefit and be grateful if you manage to kind of get a hold on things in your young adulthood
1: yeah it's really i think this chapter again approached This topic or, you know, these situations, as you say, in, in such a refreshing, validating way, I, I did make note about just that conversation you had at the beginning of the chapter about language and just saying, yeah, this is really complicated. It's something I personally have not struggled with, but had to be intentional about as I wrote differently wired in when I did the paperback edition, I made even further updates. I'd make new updates today. Like language is evolving and, um, I just really appreciated that lens through which you you wrote this and what i loved about this chapter is it normalizes things right and and you even say i'm not sure where you got the statistic but that you know 50% really of adults have something you know different going on about the way that they're processing or, or experiencing their brain and the and the world so by including this in just in this book which isn't just for neurodivergent adults it felt powerful. It felt practical. You've already established such a trust with the reader. Um So it just felt so validating. So, and I also would love if you could just share a couple, you have a great section in here, self-care checklist. And I talk about self-care all the time, but this is a different kind of a checklist. And I loved the kinds of things you included. Um, could you share some of those?
0: Happily, happily. And let me just go back to that one and two stat and say that, um, I hope what I said, yeah, I'm just looking at, back at it myself. So I'm, I'm not saying one in two adults have a diagnosis, but one in two 18-year-olds. And I read that stat somewhere, read it in a number of places. So certainly for those at the younger end of the readership, one in two have a diagnosis of some kind. And that just further underscored my need to completely normalize that fact and I do address in this chapter why a lot of older folks say, what's wrong with those people, with that generation? Like da, da, da. And I'm here as you know, a 53-year-old saying, no, 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 you older folks, stop. Things are different now. Just stop. Stop comparing your way of being and what you know and what you remember from your own. Just stop. Let's stop imposing upon millennials and Gen Z some boomer or even Gen X or ideal of like the way things should be. And I do a lot of generational. I I am humble generationally in this book. Uh, There's a point in the book later and I'm going to get to your question. I haven't forgotten it. I'm sorry. There's a point in the book later where I say, you know, try to make things better in the world. And I just upfront say, I know it takes a lot of chutzpah for somebody older than you to tell you to make the world better because we, the older people have (laughs) messed it up. So I try Mm -hmm. to do that dance of like, I'm here, I may be less credible, because I'm in these older generations. But here's why I try to prove why I'm trustworthy. I I think basically, all right, Mm -hmm. let me go to the self care checklist. Right? I'm trying to put together a checklist that is truly inclusive. Um, I'm also trying to acknowledge that self care has been quite fetishized. Sometimes we think self care is you know, a certain type of bath salts and a certain type of music. And hey, if that works for you, awesome, awesome. But I think there are broader themes at work. And I'll just quickly run them down without giving descriptions. I have breathe deeply. That's number one. Breathe deeply. Be aware that this romantic dance between your heart and lungs is a potent regulator of your feelings. So breathing, breathing. Number two, get good sleep. Number three, drink water. Are you getting how basic this is? But it's basic mm-hmm. because so many of us are so freaking busy. We don't sleep enough. We're not drinking water. You know, we're, we're you can't have a panic attack if you are breathing deeply, as one of the people who's a storyteller in the book will illustrate. Um, number four, move your body. And that paragraph is respectful of the ways in which you may not be able to move but urging you to move in whatever ways you can. Number five, eat nourishingly. I got some great feedback from somebody. Uh, Originally, I had said something like, feed your body or eat well, or I'm not sure, but there was some sort of body stuff in that paragraph that I didn't even realize was there. As a heavy person, I had managed to write a paragraph that was like, you know, eat things you like and allow you to fit into the clothes you want to wear. And somebody gave me feedback like, why are you making eating about clothes? And I was like, yeah, why am I? So now it's just eat nourishingly. Food is fuel and talks about, you know, just the value of of eating nourishingly. Six, claim your agency. That means being in charge of your own self and the choices you make. Seven, process your feelings. Eight, find balance on social media. And it may seem strange to have social media in a chapter or a list that also includes breathing well and eating well. But the point is all of these things affect our self-care. Number nine, ask for what you need. Number 10, get regular checkups. Number 11, get therapy. Number 12, be smart about your meds. I'm not here to say whether people should or should not be on meds. You know best what your body needs and should take a curiosity always around, if I'm on meds, are they working for me? If I'm not, might I need to be on some? That's for you to decide. I'm just saying, be smart about meds. Number 13, hang around your people. The people who know us and love us as we are are essential to our wellness. Number 14, laugh and play. Number 15, give and get hugs. 16, have orgasms. Can I just say that? This book also includes references to sex and our sexual health and the pleasures that come from sex, which are an important part of adult life. Number 17, have a gratitude and guidance practice somewhere. I'm not here to tell you to be religious or not religious, but giving gratitude and asking for guidance is a super important aspect of life. Number 18, forgive. And number 19, finally, never underestimate the power of a 15 minute nap.
1: (laughs) Love it. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches Oh my goodness, Julie, that is just such a fantastic list. I loved it. And again, these are the things we just need to know. And you've done this in every chapter, I will just say. You know, the chapters you've curated from wise friends that you have and you've presented so many just practicalities within each chapter. And this is just one example, but just the best self-care list I've ever read. So just want to say that. Thank you. You're welcome. And I I want to just talk briefly about the stories that you included. So um it, at the end of every chapter, you have a section called don't just take my word for it. And you mentioned earlier that you talked to over 30 different people to get there uh, to really share through storytelling and, This was another part of your book, which was very different from what we might, you know, usually you might read a few paragraphs and a little anecdote, but you shared these people's stories. I was, as a writer, I was like, wow, the way that you presented all of these different experiences was so refreshing and cool. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about why you really wanted to go deep with the other voices you brought in.
0: Absolutely. Um, As I said earlier, I really rejected the notion that I was an authority on adulting or that anyone is, frankly. So my way into this book as its author was to say, what can I offer, but what do I need to bring in from the lived experience of other humans? So that's why each, almost every chapter is anchored with the stories of other people I am not adept at writing the profiles of other people. That is, I have not come up through journalism. I've, I've not studied this. And so this was a real opportunity for me to learn and grow in my writing. And I can really chart over the course of writing this book, um, my my skill development in this area of trying to put other people thoughtfully and accurately on the page in a in a manner that constitutes good storytelling. So these bits are so important to my why about writing this book. And it was really essential that I get them right, not just for the reader, but for the person I'm profiling. And so I had a quite an intimate relationship with each one going back and forth, making sure that they feel that I've, I've constructed this profile accurately, thoughtfully, and I'll, ultimately I hope they'll be proud of it. The three people that anchor this particular chapter, take good care of yourself are um, a guy named tone. Who's about 22 and, is dealing with or was dealing with a really acute set of struggles, anxiety and depression coming out of a highly academically stressed out childhood. And he talks about his recovery and and his practices for keeping himself aware of what his self is going through a journaling, meditation practice uh, that was really quite foreign to him at the outset. Um, Then I have Sarah, who's 29 and uh, a woman from Puerto Rico um, who is part indigenous, Taino um, is the name of of her people um, and her ethnicity. And she struggled with eating disorders and OCD in college as she was sort of fetishized and otherized at a highly elite college um, coming out of the island of Puerto Rico, where she was one of the best math students on the island and yet at her college, Stanford, people could only see her for how beautiful she was. And um, she talks about moving into an, an, a community that celebrated Indigenous culture, um, the Native American theme dorm on campus, as a way to fully know herself and embrace herself and discovering her indigeneity and, and appreciating it, being around others who did, really was the, sor- the source of her healing. And then I have Jeff, who is a 47-year-old conservative white male who was in the military and, and became bipolar, um, had his first manic episode on a highway in Washington, DC, and was basically asked to leave the military where he had a high security clearance. And this is a story of his journey to deal with his bipolar disorder and he's religious. And, um, so God plays a role, church plays a role, and family plays a role. And he really goes quite deep into explaining what his manic episodes are like. And I really wanted to put that there. So again, so people who are dealing with that would see, the, you know, something similar to, to perhaps what they struggle with, see it validated on the page.
1: It, it's so good. And you know, every chapter, again, has these stories, listeners, and you really, we get to know these people. And it, it's it's so much generosity on their part. It also speaks to the trust and the relationship they have with you. And also, again, as a writer, I was really, really blown away by um, the labor of love that this book is. And, and I believe that it's all paid off. Um, so now I'm going to ask you a super typical interview book author question, but do you have a favorite chapter? Is there a part of this book that you just are, you know, really is kind of your baby?
0: Nope, I don't. Um, That may speak to the fact that I have almost literally just completed it. And I haven't had a time to set it down and look back at it and pour over it. I do have some favorite stories. You know, the book opens um, early on in the book is a chapter called uh, Tag, You're It, the terror and joy offending for yourself. And one of the stories at the end of that chapter is from Levi, this Lyft driver who rescued mm-hmm. me and my family at the side of the road. This was a stranger. And I think my interest and curiosity in chatting up a stranger that led to a phone call that led to this dude being in my book, I think in some ways that, illustrates an aspect of adulting, you know, lean into the people you meet, be curious about who they are, you might learn a thing or two. And I'm hoping that that's a subtle message um, that that one gets. It's not like all the people who are storytellers in this book are strangers to me, but many of them were, and required a degree of bravery or just putting myself out there that I think is emblematic of a well lived adulthood. Yeah, that
1: was a great story. And also, I just want to you know, you've written a memoir and I, I've read Real American and it's very personal. Um, and this book was personal in a different way. And I can tell how hard you work to kind of strike that balance. And, and you say this a lot. Like, I am not the expert. You know, I kind of see you as like a, a big sister or a mentor to people, but you, um, are your credibility comes from your ability to share. Sometimes. Less than flattering uh experiences and 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 painful things that you've experienced. And how hard was that to go there? Thought, what, what do you
0: mean less than flattering? I thought everything <laughs> this book was flattering of me. No, no, no. I'm joking. Um i learned that lesson, Debbie, from my amazing editor, Barbara Jones. Big shout out to Barbara Jones. Um, she's been my editor now through three books. And when I was writing my second book, my memoir, to which you just alluded, Real American, which is about me being black and biracial and white spaces and dealing with racism and microaggressions, I had written all kinds of stories. That book, the, the, the form is kind of little vignettes across 200 pages. And my editor said, Julie, you're not telling any of the the bad things you did, (laughs) any of the shameful things, the things you regret, the things that make you wince. And I'm like, of course not. I want the reader to like me. (laughs) And she said, Julie, you want the reader to root for you to continue turning these pages and ultimately, you know, arrive at some place of growth or discovery or what have you at the end. And they won't root for you if they don't see that you're exquisitely human, which means flawed, screwed up, you know, Etc. They will relate to you if you show your imperfections. And, um, of course it made perfect sense. I already somehow knew that in my mind, but I wasn't ready to do that on the page. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to show, look younger human than me. I have done things I'm not proud of, but they're really human things. And you may do those too. It's, I think, trying to show like you will mess up it's all right. You're still loved. You're still worthy of leading this life and, and trying to make your way forward. Like it's okay. I think this book is trying to do that. You know, this comforting, like it's okay. It's okay. You are okay. You are exquisitely perfect. You are, but it's not about perfect. You are exquisitely you, you're exquisitely fine. Um, you matter. I'm trying to appeal to this generation that feels inadequate at the task of simply being an adult, which is simply the stage of life between childhood and death, you know, I'm here to say like, you've, you've got this, you've got this, take a deep breath, you've got this and I'm rooting for you and let's go, let's, let's go on this journey together and when you've arrived and you've had your moment of like, aha, I'm an adult, I'm good, you can hand this book off to someone else, you know? And um, nothing, when you ask me, what do I want for this book? That's the answer. Mm. Abby, that's the answer. And I'm like crying, like the greatest compliment this book could receive is if a reader hands off a careworn, dog-eared copy to someone coming up on the path behind them. Mm. That would be the ultimate compliment. That would be what I would wish for.
1: so beautiful. I can hear just the conviction and your passion for these readers. And, um and it just all comes through in the book. So I just want to say congratulations. Again, I, I've i gushed enough to you also outside of this podcast, but I will just say to listeners, this is really a phenomenal book. And um, we're recording this at the end of January. But as you guys are listening to this, the book comes out next week. So definitely check it out, buy it for yourself, buy it for, for friends and uh, Julie, how can readers connect with you and best support this book?
0: Thanks so much, Debbie, and thanks to everyone who's listening. It's really, it's really wonderful to know you're there. Um, my website is the best place to connect: julielifcotthames.com. It's my name without the hyphen. dot com uh, My social handles are all jlifcotthames, Again, no hyphen. jlifcotthames on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm actually launching a membership club with Debbie's um, advice and guidance. So if you decide um, you want to really connect more deeply, the membership club is just sort of a place to connect. Um, I try to create community. I will answer your questions, but also invite you to be wise and loving and supportive of one another. Um, So that's something that's new and I'm excited about. So yeah, join me online wherever, you know, whatever space is, is good for you. Chances are I'm there.
1: Great. Thank you. And listeners, I will, of course, have links in the show notes for all the places that you can connect with Julie. And Julie, I just want to say a big warm thank you. This has been such a great conversation. I was really really just looking forward to it. I had pages of notes and um, was curious to see where the conversation went. And I really appreciate you sharing with us today.
0: I'm so glad to have you in my life, Debbie. And I know I speak for all in your community when I just praise you for who you are, how you are. Um, You're really quite extraordinary. So I'm honored that you're holding my book in your hands and that you are holding it in high regard. It means the world.
1: You've been listening to the tilt parenting podcast for the show notes for this episode, visit TiltParenting.comslash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible. So people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.TiltParenting.com. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters.